0: Hello, and welcome to PrimeMed's podcast series on influenza. This second of three podcasts will focus on influenza management in 2020, pharmacologic strategies for influenza treatment and prophylaxis. We welcome Dr. Daniel Solomon, Associate Physician in the Division of Infectious Disease at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Instructor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. The learning objectives of this podcast is to 1. Describe recommendations for the management of patients with suspected or confirmed influenza and those at high risk for complications, and 2. Select appropriate antiviral medications for the treatment of influenza. Before we get started, let me remind everyone that this podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. For more information, please visit the activity page for this podcast on www.primed.com.
1: My name is Daniel Solomon, and I'm an infectious disease physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Flu season is just around the corner, and there's a lot of uncertainty this year about the upcoming flu season, as we face the threat of both flu and COVID circulating simultaneously. So it feels important to be really well-prepared this episode is going to focus on the approach to treatment and prophylaxis of influenza, and I'm going to divide this discussion into to three separate parts. The first will be who should receive treatment for influenza. The second will be which antiviral medication can be used and what are the pros and cons of each one. And the third will be when should I think about antiviral prophylaxis. And I think it might be useful to start with a clinical case to guide this discussion. So let's pretend like it's january so we're in the middle of flu season and our patient named tim is a 50 year old man with a history of asthma and high blood pressure who prevents for evaluation of fever cough and shortness of breath he uh he works as a bus driver and he says that about three days ago after getting home from work he started to feel achy with the chills the symptoms were initially mild and he stayed home from work hoping that they would pass but they've just gotten worse. And over the past two days, he's developed the non-productive cough with some shortness of breath. So as part of our evaluation, we do a nasopharyngeal swab for multiple respiratory viruses. Fortunately, his COVID-19 PCR comes back negative, but his PCR for influenza is positive for influenza A. So here's the question, how should we manage this patient? I think that this vignette really highlights the two questions that are gonna help guide who should be treated for the flu. And the first is how long has the patient had symptoms? I think a really important rule of thumb is that the earlier treatment is initiated, the better in any patient. And that treatment is most effective when it started within 48 hours of symptom onset. Now, remember back from our vignette, our patient's symptoms started three days ago. So he's a little bit outside that 48 hour The second question is, does my patient have any risk factors for a severe disease or complications of influenza? And the answer in this case is yes. So our patient remember has an underlying lung disease, he has asthma, which does put him at higher risk for complications. Okay, so let's go to the guidelines. For individuals with uncomplicated influenza and no risk factors for severe disease, we recommend initiating antiviral medication only if it's in the, within the first 48 hours of symptoms. For individuals with risk factors, treatment can be initiated even if they're outside that 48 hour window. The goal here is to, of course, decrease the duration of symptoms, but more importantly, it's to decrease the risk of secondary complications like a bacterial superinfection uh, or respiratory failure needing intubation or a heart attack in someone with underlying heart disease. I think it may be helpful here just to review what those high-risk features are, and I like to divide them into two main categories. The first is anyone with a low immune system. So of course, this will be anyone with um, immune deficiency from a disease like advanced HIV or AIDS, or anyone who is receiving immunosuppressive medications like corticosteroids or biologics. Also in this category, I would include people at the bookends of the age spectrum. So kids less than two or adults over 65. And then the last group I'd like to highlight here is pregnant women. So pregnant women are at increased risk for complications and that's due at least in part to the relative immunosuppression of pregnancy. So that's category one. The the second category is anyone with underlying comorbidities such as heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease or liver disease. One group I wanna highlight here is patients with obesity. Uh, Patients with BMI greater than 40 are at particularly high risk for complications from influenza. So those are the people in whom I'm thinking about treating even if they're outside that 48 hour window. Okay, so let's come back to the case. Um, I think that Tim really is a good candidate for antiviral therapy even though he's outside that window. So so now we're going to switch to phase two of the discussion, which is what medication should we start? There are two main medications that are used commonly in outpatient practice. Oseltamivir, the brand name is Tamiflu, but I'm going to use the generic Oseltamivir for the rest of this podcast. And Biloxivir Marboxyl, this is a new one. The brand name is Zofluza. Before sort of diving into these two, I'm going to note that inhaled zanamivir is also approved for this indication, but it has this side effect. It can cause bronchospasm in people with underlying reactive airway disease. So in patients who have the flu, who already have respiratory symptoms, giving them bronchospasm is the last thing we want. I will say I never use it in practice, so I'm not going to focus on it much here. What we're going to do is take a closer look at those two different medications, oseltamivir and meloxivir, and try to decide, you know, when are we going to use each one? Let's start with oseltamivir. This is the medication you're probably most familiar with. For adults, it's given at a dose of 75 milligrams twice a day for five days, um, and it can be adjusted for people with underlying kidney disease. It's safe in pregnancy and is the preferred treatment for pregnant women. How effective is oseltamivir? So there's this common wisdom, right, that it decreases duration of symptoms by about one day. If we look closely at the literature, in adults, it's closer to about 18 hours. In children, it's closer to about 30 hours. But I I think it's fair to say that one day fewer of symptoms um, when I share that data with patients. Now, that might not seem like a huge deal, but for anyone who's actually had the flu, a day can feel like a really long time. And if we think about how common the flu is, a one-day decrease in symptoms across a population can actually lead to a major impact on productivity, like with fewer days of missed work or school. The main side effects we see with oseltamivir are nausea and vomiting. And this is really common. So patients say, oh my gosh, I feel really sick. And then on top of that, I'm feeling nauseated. So I always tell patients to take it with some food to try to settle the stomach. And I would say that most people are able to to get through the course of antivirals, even if they do have some of those side effects. I think it's worth mentioning here that there are rare reports of neuropsychiatric events with oseltamivir, and they can be quite severe with hallucinations, sometimes even requiring hospitalization. This is super uncommon, and I don't really talk about it with patients as a common side effect because it's so rare resistance to oseltamivir is really uncommon. But I will say that there's some variation year to year. So if we rewind the clock to 2009, when we saw the H1N1 pandemic, there were some reports of emerging resistance. So this is something we should keep our antenna up for. And if we see rising rates of resistance, it might change the medication that we choose. Okay, so that's oseltamivir. The newer medication that you probably have less experience with is biloxivir marboxyl. Um, And that's sort of a mouthful. So from here on in, I'm just going to call it biloxivir. This is a first-in-class medication. Um, The class is the CAP-dependent endonuclease inhibitor. Um, The important part, you don't need to remember that, but the important part here is that that is a different mechanism of action from oseltamivir, which is a neuraminidase inhibitor. This medication has been approved for adults and children older than the age of 12. Um, It has been studied under the age of 12, and the reports look as though um, it's probably safe and effective in in younger kids, but it has not been approved in anyone less than 12 years old right now. I would say that the major benefit to biloxivir is that it's given as a single dose. It's weight-based, so it's either 40 milligrams times one or 80 milligrams times one, depending on the patient's weight. Veloxavir does not need to be adjusted for renal function, and adherence is really easy, one dose and you're done. In general, it's a little bit better tolerated than oseltamivir. Some people do experience nausea or diarrhea, but remember, it's a single dose, so it's not something you're taking twice a day for a whole course. You take it once and then it's done. So how well does it work? This is the important question, right? So it works about as well, and I'll say maybe, a little better than oseltamivir. So what do I mean by that? If we look at the big studies that show our outcomes data, the, the outcome we care most about, the time to improvement in symptoms and the rate of secondary infections and complications, there's no statistical significant difference between oseltamivir and veloxivir. Both of them decrease symptoms by about one day both of them decrease secondary complications significantly when compared to placebo, and there was no statistical difference between the two. Veloxavir does result in a more rapid decline in the viral load. So I think this is interesting and a very important outcome to track. In other viral infections, such as HIV, the viral load is a really good proxy for the risk of transmission. The higher the viral load, the more infectious an individual is. So it would be really interesting, and I would say very important, if the more rapid decline in the viral load with baloxavir actually correlates with a decrease in infectious risk. Right now, we don't have any data to show that. Um, so I think that would be very interesting to see if studies are able to show that that decrease in the viral load can cause patients to be infectious, less infectious. Um, then we would say that's actually a major benefit over Oseltamivir. But right now, if we come back to the important factors of decrease in symptoms, decrease in complications, the two are about equivalent. One thing to note about biloxivir is that viral resistance seems to emerge more quickly than an oseltamivir. I think this will be an important trend to watch as biloxivir becomes more widely used. Okay, so let's compare the two medications head to head. From an efficacy standpoint, I would say they're pretty much equivalent, though this sort of data about the rapid decline in the viral load is tantalizing. I think the major benefit to Veloxavir is the single dose and the decrease in side effects. Oseltamivir um, is currently preferred in pregnant women and children under 12. And as I said, there's some data to show that veloxivir should be safe and effective in children, but it's not currently approved for anyone younger than 12. One question I receive a lot is about the cost of the medication. So biloxivir is not always covered by insurance, and if patients have to pay out of pocket, it can be expensive. I think the -the over-the-counter cost is somewhere around $150 for that single dose. Oseltamivir actually is also quite expensive as well. A typical course costs about $100 out of pocket, but it's more commonly covered by insurance. Now that most medications are approved as first-line therapy by the FDA, insurance companies may choose to follow suit and cover both medications. But this is a moving target and it differs across different insurance companies. So it's important to keep in mind that cost can be a barrier to using boloxivir in your patients. And it's important to check out if their insurance will cover it before prescribing. Okay, let's come back to our, our case. So Tim, um, his insurance covers Oseltamivir with a minimal copay. So that's what we're gonna prescribe. We give him a five-day course of treatment And say you know call me if anything if anything gets worse but that afternoon you get a call from his wife susan asking if she should take medication for prophylaxis she's also 50 years old she's healthy with no medical conditions and she works from home she sheepishly admits that she forgot to get the flu vaccine this year so what about susan is she a good candidate for prophylaxis So what I'm gonna do here is review the CDC recommendations for prophylaxis, and then I'm gonna share my personal approach. The CDC is actually fairly restrictive on who should receive antiviral prophylaxis for the flu. And there are basically three conditions, and we have to meet all three conditions for the CDC criteria. The first is that it should be started within 48 hours of her first exposure. The second is that the individual needs to have some condition that puts them at high risk for complication. And the third is that the patient did not receive the flu vaccine this year or received it in the past two weeks, so is unlikely to have mounted a full response. In this case, Susan does not meet those criteria. We're outside the 48-hour window, and she does not have any of those high-risk conditions that put her at risk for complications. Okay, so that's the CDC guidelines. I will say that in practice, I'm a little bit more liberal with with the prophylaxis. I would say the data is fairly compelling. Neuraminidase inhibitors are between 70 to 90% effective in preventing acquisition of the flu. And I tend to ignore the vaccine criteria. So the efficacy of the vaccine varies year to year, as we know, and typically we actually don't know how effective this year's vaccine is until late in the season. So for patients who are not high-risk themselves, but say that they're sort of high-risk adjacent, maybe they're caring for an elderly parent or they're a healthcare provider, I have a pretty low threshold to offer prophylaxis. What medications do we use? So right now, the only medication I use is oseltamivir. I want to highlight that the dosage is different for prophylaxis from treatment. It's 75 milligrams once a day for seven days rather than 75 milligrams twice a day for five days, which is the treatment course. A recent study showed that a single dose of biloxivir is also effective as as prophylaxis, and it's currently under FDA review for this indication, but it has not yet been approved at the time that I'm recording this. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of this episode. So we reviewed who should be treated for influenza. We reviewed the most common medications that should be used, and we reviewed the criteria and approach for prophylaxis for influenza. If you're interested in influenza epidemiology in the era of COVID 19 and the approach to testing for the flu, be sure to check out the first episode in this mini series on influenza.
0: I hope it's been useful. To obtain your CME credit, please visit primed.com and complete a short post assessment. If you listen to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description, where there is a direct link to the activity page on primed.com for claiming CME credit.